I imagine this will be a little bit interesting. I haven't spoken in front of people since the second week of March, so I'm a little out of practice. And for those of you that like fun facts, this is the third Father's Day in a row that I've preached here at Berean, and it's always a privilege, and I look forward to opening the Word of God with you this morning. Uh, But I'm thinking first about how in the development of history, God has allowed us to learn so much about his universe. And whenever that knowledge has moved forward, uh, there have been people who have denied what has been discovered. You know, for thousands of years, people thought that the earth was flat. Thought if you get too close to the edge you're going to fall off that thing, so you better stay close to land, right? Um, And you would think with the dawn of airplanes and spaceships, not to mention circumnavigation of the globe, that the idea of the flat earth would have landed on the junk heap of history. Not so. There's still a flat earth society in the United States and in Canada. And then... There was the geocentric theory. Up until about the 1500s, most everybody believed that the earth was the center of things and that the planets and the sun and all that went around the earth. And early scientists came up with elaborate but wrong theories to explain the strange movements of the planets around them. See, if you take the earth to be the center of things, then sometimes the other planets appear to be revolving forward, and other times they appear to be engaged in retrograde motion. Well, of course, it turns out that the planets in our solar system revolve around the sun, When Galileo put forth his belief in heliocentrism based on experimentation, the Roman Catholic Church of his day was the big naysayer, the big denier of things. And what I learned from that is when we look at Scripture, we ought to take it humbly. We ought to look at ourselves as humble readers of Scripture. Listen to the quote from their day. The matter was investigated by the Roman Inquisition in 1615, which concluded that heliocentrism was foolish and absurd in philosophy and formally heretical since it explicitly contradicted the sense of the scriptures. And we may not always understand how a particular passage applies in the physical world, and therefore we ought to hold our ideas with humility. Well, we could go on with the list of deniers. There are people who deny that the Holocaust happened. There are people who believe that 9-11 was an inside job. There's probably somebody running around this morning who believes that COVID-19 is all a big hoax. There will always be people who deny well-supported, verified, tested truths. And the folks in today's passage are some of the biggest deniers in all of history. So, let's turn to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, and we're starting at verse 27 to find out who these folks were and what they had to say. Luke 20, verse 27. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, 
they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in, the re- in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. Well, the passage opens with the Sadducees coming to Jesus. Sadducees were one of the main religious and political groups at the time of Christ. They were kind of old-line traditionalists. Uh, They accepted only the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as real, inspired, canonical scripture. Um, And according to Josephus, a famous Jewish historian, they were harsh judges unpopular, and not even very kind to each other. They were the worst face of conservatism. So they come to Jesus with a question, but it's not really a question. It's a gotcha question. It's the kind of question that you ask somebody when you're trying to put that somebody on a spot and make them uncomfortable. The question they bring centers on the issue of leverate marriage. To understand this issue a little further, why don't you turn with me to Deuteronomy 25. So we're going to go back into the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy 25. uh, The discussion here starts at verse 5. Deuteronomy 25, 5. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders 
take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. The man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Now, in our ironic age and time, I think it'd be kind of a humorous to be known as the family of the unsandled. I'd probably enjoy that. But they're in a very different time, and the shame that this would have brought to that family is palpable. So, um, it seems that the point of leverate marriage, of a brother marrying the widow of his dead brother, right, was twofold. First, to keep a man's family line from being snuffed out, And second, to provide children for a widow who otherwise would not have any. At any rate, this command in the law leads to the Sadducees' hypothetical question. They wanted to know, if some guy died leaving a wife but no children, and his brother married her, and the same scenario unfolded once or more, whose wife would she be? at this resurrection that they didn't believe in anyway. It gives the story kind of a feeling of completeness uh, in that they phrased it so that there were seven brothers total and all of them faced the same fate. They probably thought that they really, really had Jesus on the ropes. And Jesus graciously answers their gotcha question. Their question was no match for the wisdom of the one who had always been fully God and who became fully man at the incarnation. In Matthew's account of this event, Jesus is even more pointed with them. He tells them that the reason they're on the wrong side of this issue is number one, they don't know the scriptures, and number two, they don't know the power of God. Now, there's an entire sermon in those two points, um, and most of us would probably be guilty most of the time along with the Sadducees on that one, but that's a different sermon. We'll stick with Luke for this morning, where Jesus' answer, beyond putting the Sadducees in their place, is extremely important for us. What do we learn from his response? What is Jesus teaching here? Well, there's four truths I'd like to point out. Number one, there certainly will be a resurrection from the dead. There certainly will be a resurrection from the dead. Jesus' whole answer shows that he is dead certain that people will rise one day, either to eternal life or to eternal death. The answer to the question, what happens after you die, is a key part of anyone's worldview. Some belief systems have no answer to this question. Others believe that you're reincarnated or perhaps become part of the cosmos itself. The Bible presents this question as one of ultimate importance, so important that Paul can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you're going to say that to die is gain, you better be pretty confident that there's something better coming afterwards. So there certainly will be a resurrection from the dead. Number two, marriage is the plan for this age, 
but not for the age to come. Marriage is the plan for this age, but not for the age to come. We know from Scripture that marriage is God's plan for this present age in the physical realm. A man and a woman commit themselves to each other for life, share physical intimacy, and produce real flesh and blood children. That's the pattern for this world. But Jesus says that at the resurrection of the dead, marriage will no longer be a part of our experience. There won't be any need for couples or families as we now understand them. And really, if you think about it, marriage and family are great sources of protection and intimacy and closeness, right? Um, And in all ways, we're protected physically, we're protected emotionally, and we're protected spiritually by the idea of family. I want to talk about physically for a second. Um, For starters, there's strength in numbers, Right? Just the, the sheer fact that families have no, numerous people in them. Um, here we are on Father's Day, and I think that children who have had healthy relationships with their fathers would tell you that it feels a lot safer when dad is home. Right? Now, um, in, in our family, since I'm not exactly a specimen of strength, I would always tell the younger children that Evan is the scariest thing in this part of the world, and so they don't need to be afraid of anything at night, but that's unusual to my family. Um, We provide emotional security, right? Families hold each other up. Families encourage one another. Moms and dads can talk about what's going on with the kids and be encouragement for one another, and they can pray for those kids. Brothers and sisters can even spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And then we hold each other up spiritually, right? The family is God's design for children to learn about his character and his goodness, As children hear their parents talk about God's faithfulness, as children hear their parents lead them in prayer, as children learn the scriptures from their parents, the deposit of Jesus' work by his Holy Spirit grows inside of them, and they are protected from competing worldviews that are telling a different story and a deadly story. But in the resurrection age... We will dwell in the very presence of God. Sin will be defeated forever. There won't be anything in the whole environment that will be harmful or damaging. And so, minus the flesh, the sinful tendencies that we carry around with us, we will be complete and whole in a way that we have never been here in this broken world. So marriage is the plan for this age, but not for the age to come. Number three, like the angels, participants in the resurrection cannot die. Like the angels, participants in the resurrection cannot die. This is a very important truth. See, humans, broken and foolish as we are, have a lot of fears. Now I'm told that Americans' number one fear is public speaking, uh, which is not a fear that I share with them. Uh, But I have to imagine that dying ranks right up there too, right? So 
if I'm part of the group that will participate in the resurrection of the dead that Jesus is addressing in this passage, then I have nothing to fear from the physical death that someday, if Christ does not return first, I will face. Nothing. Jesus has promised us right here that God's children, the children of the resurrection, cannot die. We see the beginnings of this soon after Jesus rose from the dead himself. One of the first things he did was to join his disciples in a locked room and show himself to them, himself clothed with a resurrection body. His resurrection body could pass through walls and yet consume broiled fish, as he does in Luke 24, 42, and 43. Now, this is puzzling until you think about it kind of like C.S. Lewis did. He argued that our resurrected bodies will be real in a way that our physical bodies are not. And so walking through a wall so impossible to us, is nothing to children of the resurrection since the wall isn't real in the same way that your resurrected body will be real. Lewis writes, but Jesus emphatically insists that he is not merely a spirit and takes steps to demonstrate that the risen body can still perform animal operations such as eating. The resurrection body cannot die, and in fact, in your resurrected body, you will be alive in a way that you have never experienced being alive before. Number four, Jesus does not here teach that we become angels when we are resurrected. In this passage, he says we will be like angels, or if you take the ESV translation, we will be equal to angels. This is important for numbers for a number of reasons. First, nowhere does the scripture teach that we will be any other kind of being than we already are. Okay? He has created you and me to be humans, precious, valuable, beloved humans made in his image we still continue to bear that image throughout all of eternity as redeemed, restored, glorified humans. Paul carried on with this theme when he taught about the resurrection body in 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 55. In the middle of this careful, well-reasoned, detailed discussion, he writes, "'So it will be with the resurrection of the dead.'" The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Nowhere in this long passage does he teach that we become angels or anything else at the resurrection. Instead, he teaches, exactly consistent with Jesus Christ, that we become glorified, complete, perfected humans, humans with a spiritual body and a soul free from sin forevermore. 
I'd like you to see in this passage that Jesus is also a master logician. Remember, the Sadducees only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. And so when Jesus has this discussion with them, he could have gone to many, many other places in the Old Testament and found an easier indication that there is life after death. But instead, he meets them on their own terms. He takes them back to Exodus chapter 3, the famous incident where Moses, about to be called by God, saw a burning bush that didn't burn up. He focuses on Yahweh's identification of himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and then points out that the almighty creator of the whole universe would not be identifying himself with three dead patriarchs. How depressing would that be? No, he says that God can describe himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob because... They, to him, are all alive. They're alive to him. You might be curious to know what the Old Testament says about the resurrection from the dead. In the books of Moses, honestly, it's not a major topic. But page forward to the Psalms, and you'll see Psalms like Psalm 49, uh, verses 14 and 15. In Psalm 49, the psalmist is bemoaning the people who are rich towards themselves, but not rich towards God. He writes of them in verses 14 and 15. He says, Like sheep, they are destined for the grave, and death will feed on them. But then he sets up a contrast between them and himself, the godly person. Listen to verse 15. But God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. And Daniel 12 is even more compelling. Here's verse 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So the Old Testament has hints everywhere that there is, in fact, a resurrection from the dead. So, what do we do with this passage? This response of Jesus to the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. I'd like to suggest a couple things. Number one, in the Luke passage, Jesus makes it clear that only some will be considered worthy to participate in the resurrection to eternal life. Worthy. That's a word that implies some are in and some are out. The rest of the Bible makes clear that worthiness means holiness. As Matthew 5.48 says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, for me, that's a bad deal. If you were to look back at my many years of life, you would see plenty of unworthiness, plenty of selfishness, plenty of impatience, plenty of lust, 
and plenty of all the rest of the stuff that we don't have time to go into this morning. There is no way that I would get counted worthy on my own. And quite frankly, you haven't met God's righteous standard either. On our own, we could only look forward to judgment with dread in our hearts. And that's why I thank God for Jesus Christ, my great high priest, the only high priest who sacrificed himself once for all that my sins would be forgiven and I could be reconciled to God. In Jesus, I am worthy. In Jesus, I am accepted. I am adopted. I am appreciated. In Jesus, I have true spiritual life. And I know that after I die, I will be raised again on the last day. Now, if you haven't stopped trusting yourself and started trusting Jesus Christ and asked Him to be your righteousness before the Father, I urge you to do that today. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is opening your mind for the first time. Perhaps He's giving you an understanding of how to have the abundant life that Christ promises us. And I urge you, receive His gift of eternal life today. Now, when you consider this passage, you can also have comfort for your loved ones who have gone on before. Um, we all have loved ones who have departed this life, but as Christians, we don't grieve with those who have no hope. We grieve as those who know that we will see them again. If your loved one was in Christ and you are in Christ, you will certainly see those people again. Take me, for example. I'm the only child of much older parents. Both of them, as well as many of the dear people from my young years, have already finished this life and gone on to be with the Lord. If I thought I would never see those people again, that would be a heavy burden to bear. Instead, I trust the word that tells me that those who have died in the Lord will be raised again on the last day. I take comfort in that already, and I'm sure that this doctrine will provide even more comfort as my years on this earth continue to roll on. And finally, this passage teaches me to have courage to live for Jesus Christ in this broken fallen, hurting world. There's no shortage of hurt. There's no shortage of anger. There's no shortage of chaos and confusion. And just watching the events of the past few weeks have taught us that over and over, right? But when you really begin to understand that your years in this world are a little prequel, like a setup, if you will, to the preface the never-ending story that we will live in eternity, you begin to live with increased perspective. You can afford to give of yourself in service to others. You can be generous and focus on people, not things. Because as the writer of Hebrews tells us, here we have no lasting city. You can use your life and your words to intentionally help other people know the God who stepped into history to rescue his people. 
you can put down your hatred and your unforgiveness and live at peace with others so much as it depends on you. As a child of the resurrection, you cannot lose. As a child of the resurrection, your eternity is secure, and that makes all the difference. Let's invite the worship team back up as we pray. Father, we rejoice to find these comforting truths in your word. We thank you that the resurrection from the dead is even more certain than the podium that I'm holding on to right now. We thank you that your grace and your mercy surrounds us, and we ask that as we ponder the truths in this passage, that we would remember that we are safe in you that we can live courageously because we are safe in you, and that we can be comforted knowing that one day you will make all things new and you will share yourself with us in a way that we as yet cannot completely understand. So thank you for this morning together. Help us to continue in worship of you, not only for the next few minutes, uh, but for the days and hours and weeks and months to come. And it's in the Savior's name that we pray it. Amen.